Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Dr. Stefano Bini. I am the host of the podcast. And today I have the honor of bringing you the audio files from the DocSF Generative Artificial Intelligence in Orthopedic Surgery webinar. This is the first of a number of webinars we'll have on this topic because it's so fastly growing and impacting our field that it's worth getting ahead of it. So enjoy. We hope this is educational and also gets you thinking about what the future might bring. Enjoy. Welcome everybody to the DocSF Generative AI in Orthopedics webinar. It's our first of two. And interesting little fact, yesterday we published the 141st episode of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, which we're very proud of. And it showcased the incredible lectures at the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco from the last set of lectures, of course, from 2023. And if you enjoy the conversation today, it will be available on the DocSF Podcast in a short time, which of course is on the health podcast network. We can find other health-related podcasts from around the globe. If you're new to the DocSF family, welcome. The Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco is what DocSF stands for. It is brought to you in partnership with the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. We like our acronyms out here in California, and we reach around 6,000 innovators worldwide who follow our content. And DocSF's purpose is to help bridge the worlds of digital health and clinical orthopedics, and therefore we make our content available online anytime for free at docsf.health. Now, first for today, no worries. If you're not that familiar with AI and some of the terminologies, that's why we're here today. Hopefully you've played with or familiar with ChatGPT or MindJourney or Jasper, but we don't expect you to know a whole lot and we'll do our best to actually explain the terminology, one of the reasons we're here for that. And we've loosely structured the conversation this morning to have three basically separate segments. First one, we'll focus on the technology itself, a few things you need to know about it to understand where the conversation is going to be going, a little bit about what the superpowers are for this AI, where it might fall short. And lastly, a sort of look into the future, particularly when it comes to where we might see this applicant apply to uh, musculoskeletal care within the healthcare vertical. Now, to make sense of all this craziness, we invited some amazing people to join us today. Starting with Peter, who's next on my screen. Peter Schilling is an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery. He's the other orthopedic surgeon on the call with me today. He's at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And he has a tremendous background because besides being a researcher in the space of AI and machine learning, he actually ran companies, he's consultative companies in Silicon Valley and this space, as well as being an active and practicing surgeon. Ben Levy, a friend of mine I've known now for over a decade, how he started about about the time we met, he started a company called Bootstraps Lab. He's a co-founder of this venture capital firm. And over the past, here in Silicon Valley, and over the past five years, the assets under management or the aggregate enterprise value of his group grew by nearly $2 billion. So he definitely knew where to put his chips early. So Ben, welcome as well. And Prashant Natarajan. Prashant's a new friend of mine, amazing guy, vice president of strategy and products H2AI. And H2AI is an open source machine learning platform for the enterprise used by over 18,000 organizations worldwide. And it's uh, creating products now for the generative AI space as well. He's uh, been in healthcare for a long time. He's an author, industry leader. He wrote a book called Demystifying Big Data and Machine Learning for Healthcare, which I recommend. And uh, welcome to tell us, he's going to be very much focusing on explaining some of his technology to us. So gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me this morning. 
Thanks. Thank you for having us. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get started. Let's get started with something we all understand and we think we understand and probably don't, which is chat GPT. So Prashant, chat GPT is chat GPT. Each of those things mean something. G stands for general piece pre-trained. There's transformer. What's a transformer? Why chat? Let's talk a little bit about this thing which changed our world overnight, it seems. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Stefano, and thanks for directing that question. I think we should, again, going back, we are going to be talking about chat. We are going to be talking about conversations, large language models. So let's start off with structure, semantics, and sense, the conversation on these three. In the end, I think before we get into chat GPT and break that down, I think it serves to kind of take a look at how humans construct and use language, right? We come up with ideas, we come up with thoughts, and then we arrange that, we put that in context, and then we find words, bring the words together, create sentences. It's not a complete heuristic process per se, as much as it's an organic process. So what we are trying to do here is we are trying to do something that is difficult for humans to do with each other, which is understand each other's language perfectly every single time, all the time. But we are trying to have machines do that. And how do machines do that? So let's take the three things that you talked about, generalized, pre-trained, and transformer. In this nature, generalized is really refers to the purpose of creating a predictive model, and that's what these large language models are. They are predictive models at the core. Creating a predictive model that predicts the next word or the next set of words in a sentence. So coming up with a generalized model that can take any set of text input and predict accurately, hopefully perfectly, but accurately, the next word that is where the generalized comes from. It's the creation of a predictive model using various techniques, which we will touch upon to predict the next word or the next phrase accurately. Pre-trained. The pre-trained aspect of it comes from the fact that machine learning, deep learning, all of these things require data. It's about pattern recognition primarily, and then other things, extrapolation, completion, etc. But in order for us to be able to create this generalized model, you need to train it on data. In the case of chat GPT and some of these other things that have been released out there, these so-called foundation models, they have been trained on internet data, right? And of course, keep in mind, that comes with all its warts and blemishes because internet data doesn't only have PubMed, it also has crazy advice that somebody has given on herbal cures for cancer in Quora. So that's what these are pre-trained on. Transformer is basically the underlying architecture that is being used here. Very simply put, it's a very revolutionary architecture for converting data into accurate predictions and insights through machine and deep learning, particularly deep learning. And we'll go into more, Stefano, but at the very high level, a transformer architecture is what we see today that converts the words and sentences that exist out there into these semi-coherent or more coherent pieces of believable text. So I want to really focus on something you said at the beginning, which is context. So I think we don't understand how important context is, right? If you say a blue brick, it means it's meaningless unless you're using Lego. <laughs> so if, if you got a bunch of Legos 
and you see a blue brick, it's like, oh, you know exactly what that blue, but if I tell you I need a blue brick, and you think maybe I want something that's illegal. So context is phenomenal. And Ben, when you start thinking about context, did this chat interface really make a huge difference to the application of AI in a, in a more social network like ours? Yeah, thanks, Stefano. I think we've been tracking AI for a long time. I mean, six, five years into the making. And I think for the last seven plus years, focusing on applied AI, the very reason we, our investment thematic was applied AI is because we felt the value was being created and utility value with narrow models, right? The opposite of generalized models. And with some incredible value creation taking place over the last seven plus years. And with Gen AI, what's interesting is that to your points, like this hallucination people have been talking about. I think right now as a venture capitalist, you can't imagine the volume of noise we're witnessing with yeah. every company trapped to basically becoming XYZ with a chat GPT embedded or pick your models, pick your financial models. And so as an investor, you're always looking at what is the long-term differentiation? What is the mod? What unique sets of data do you have access to? Or are you going to continue acquiring that will really make you sustainable and differentiated in the long-term as a business? So frankly, I think that a lot of the use cases are still out there and trying to being figured out. For those actions that will have a long-term sustainable value, you can create a lot of quick value for people. I think it's all about context once again. Where do you apply this sort of technology? And I think the approach of understanding where it's dangerous and when it's not. I mean, healthcare is an exact science as much as we can. We can definitely explore and, and go crazy in some controlled context. But I think it's important to understand the context in which you apply this technology. And so we'll go back to that, I'm sure, in a minute. So uh, but context, we haven't seen yet context, context, right? Context is our. You also mentioned both you guys said something. There, there's general AI and there's narrow AI. Just to be clear in those two concepts, generalization of this AI allows it to tackle any task. Narrow means it does one thing very, very well. So the chat interface, Prashant, is where we provide context, right? So that's why the engineering part comes into these prompts, right? So if we do a poor prompt. And we're not telling the AI that the blue brick needs to live in a Lego world, then it doesn't provide us the details that we're looking for. Is that is that how a good way to think about it? The context. There's two things to us. Yes, exactly. Let's take attention and context, right? In fact, attention is a very popular term in the space because it is exactly that context between words, between phrases, and between sentences in a text block that is actually or embedics frankly, vectorized embeddings that is driving all of this. So I think the chat thing you talked about serves two functions. One is it provides the interface for regular Jane and Joe to interact with these complex large language <laughs> right? Number one. The second thing it also does, which you see when you interact with something like chat GPT, is there's a thumbs up, thumbs down. That's the reinforced learning, right? It's the human feedback you're providing to the model as well. So the chat interface does two things. It provides an interface for the most basic user, including a child, to potentially access and put a large language model to use, a generative model to use, which is beautiful. But the second thing it does, it also provides the feedback to make these models better. And let's talk a little bit about some of this terminology. Peter, a large language model, there's other kinds of models out there. There's generative AI. And then there's this terminology of foundation models. So can you put those into context for us? Yeah, I mean, I'm one of the simpletons over here. So hopefully my generalizations, there's always a truth and uh, some fiction. 
But the way I think of any of this, are you hallucinating, Peter? Uh, probably. <laughs> probably. It's uh, how do we compress the world into a statistical model or some attribute of the world? When it comes to a large language model, it's language. So how can you make a mathematical representation of language so that you can perform computations, make predictions from it. And of course, there's all sorts of different attributes to the world. There's pictures, there's audio, there's taste. And that's where we're getting into multimodal representations of the world, meaning with everything that we perceive. So one modality is language, another modality is video, another modality is audio. So those are all modalities. There's also spatial recognition, temporal. Okay, go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's the way I conceptualize of it is how can you compress this into a mathematical model so that it's useful? And that's where innovation comes in is, well, number one, it depends on the data. Number two, how are you technically going to do that? I wanted to highlight the importance of context again as well. My prior work was at a company that uh, was a digital scribe one of the companies I worked for, and context was everything. My favorite word is, uh, instead of blue brick, is just blurting out the word colon. Healthcare context, it's quite a different thing than the Iowa Writers Workshop. It really matters. And the idea that you can just plop a speaker into a room and expect that the you know, machine is going to understand what's transpiring between the doctor and the patient is a really tough one. Context matters. Even who is it that's speaking? Is Aunt Judy's comments about the patient even relevant in terms of the larger context of what goes into a note? So context and what the others have been talking about, critically important. Prashant, you mentioned three letters and it was... Semantics, structure, and sense. Yeah. And the sense part is what Peter's getting at with context. Semantics and structure are probably worth touching on real quick. I know this is not where we want to go, but you could almost argue that this thing could be retitled a discussion on context as part of DocSF. Because context is critically important to determining semantics and structure first, well before it gets to sense. What Peter and you and others are talking about is putting these into use, into clinical practice, into research, into care. But more importantly, even the semantics and structure require context. Attention is all you need is the name of a very famous paper that led to this revolution of transformers and LLMs. And what we see here is even there. To take an example, I went to the bank. It could be I went to the bank to withdraw money, or I could have gone to the banks of the River Tennessee where I live, right? So even something as simple as the fact that bank has two words changes based on context. When these words are converted into embeddings, mathematical constructs, then they are placed into vectorized space. And in the vectorized space, bank and bank could appear close to each other because they are the same word. But the context of how bank is used will determine positional encoding, which basically decides how these two differ. So you could almost argue that one of the reasons we are seeing even the progress in the development of structure and semantics through predictive models, which is basically what these are, is because we have figured out how to address context, even in the creation of these models in a spectacular fashion than we could ever do before. Okay, I wanted to go deep on this stuff to start to at least let people know how the complexity of these models are not just word association engines. They are models that have learned to describe the world we live in in a way that we can then allow us to ask questions about it. It's just remarkable. Something that we've never done before. And this would end up programming it directly. So now that we have this tool, let's stick to large language-based models first 
think in the next episode, I want to get into other types of models. But for this one, let's take the large language model. Let's talk about what they're good for and what they're suited for. I'm going to loosely get into some of the stuff around structured versus unstructured data and get back into the applications, Ben, that you've been seeing. And eventually we'll get to where Peter, where we think we need them to be. So my understanding, and back to Prashant on this one, is that these generative models work best with unstructured data. When it comes to structured data, we're probably better off with standard algorithms that we've used in the past to query information from structured data. So now, two things. What's a structured data set? What's an unstructured data set? And why does AI really need unstructured data and lots of it? So I'm going to start with the basics again. What is structured data? Any data that is broken up into attributes. For example, Prashant is a male who is 45 years old, extremely, hair. extremely handsome, right? <laughs> and no Stefano. So those are four data points about Prashant. If you break that down and say age is equal to 45, place is Chattanooga. No Stefano because they're both good looking. Now these <laughs> data points, you store them in a database that is structured data. Now, if you take what I just said and don't store it into discrete terms or discrete values, right? Variables, parameters. Then essentially you take blocks of text, whatever I'm blabbering right now, record it. Or you take a picture of me or a video of me or you take a medical image. That is unstructured data. It's data in its form that it was captured. Let's put it. So a chart is structured data, whereas a clinical note, a doctor's note is unstructured data. Yeah, yeah, or text, okay. right? All the so why stuff is it, that Peter was talking about. And why does AI really work well with unstructured data? Because the nature of these transformer architecture and generative models, generative AI, is it works very well on text and images. It creates excellent embeddings and vectors and allows us to do things with unstructured data that, frankly, we haven't been able to do before. The amazement that people have is because for the first time we are able to generate plausible semantics and structure without necessarily teaching someone the basics of grammar or basics of science or the basics of linguistics. It's mm -hmm. simply amazing. The third part is where we come in. Is it always make sense? How do you teach it to make sense? How do you know how to recognize sense versus nonsense? Because one of the challenges, which I have been writing an article now called Confidently Incorrect. A lot of these large language models are extremely confidently, but some cases incorrect. The problem is the human mind doesn't translate confidence and accuracy in a similar way. So I think the big challenge for all of us is going to be, yes, be amazed by the structure and semantics generation that is happening, but focus on the sense part of it, which I think we still have a way. So Jerry Wright doesn't have common sense. Oh, I would ben, say many humans don't ben, have common ben, sense. Ben, what do you think? Does Jerry Wright have common sense? No, but I would argue that no, it's too much to expect it to also, right? I would argue that many humans don't have common sense. So that's too much of a bar. I think the challenge to film is that I think this entire planet has been pre-trained by Hollywood to expect uh, basically an oracle, to expect a know-it-all, that AI is this AGI that we're chasing, that he understands and knows it all, and we can ask any questions, even of the future. And the challenge with that is that, again, these generative AI models 
are stochastic prediction and answers to what the next letter and the next word is. And it fools us in believing there's a thinking entity behind it that understands what is being written and it does not. So I think, you know, we need to understand what it is so that we can use it in, in the right way with the right context, because people make it mean something. People want to believe that it does certain things that it doesn't. And maybe we'd be blown away by the thing it's going to do in the next five years and we haven't even thinking about it yet. But again, because it's a creative type technology, we see that in art, we see that in language, then you need to use it in a context where creativity is a premium. And I think this is, again, back to the context. There's a lot of things that humans do that are inspirational and creative. They're using the knowledge of the past to try to make representations for the future. And these environments are interesting to create things like this and to do pattern recognitions or to study or learn from styles. And even people talk about colors and warmth and degrees, right? Of the type of answers you're getting from these models. So that's very interesting, right? We're able to do, but then as a venture capitalist, I'm like, okay, where is utility value being created? What are we disrupting, if anything? What's going to change? And again, we don't do consumer stuff. We don't do music stuff. We don't do Hollywood movie stuff. This is not really what we invest in. We invest in enterprise type technologies. We've done it the, from the beginning. But we always thought about this technology as how is it impacting people, society, and corporations. And I think if you want to usher this technology responsibly into the future, because it is scalable and this is the power and yet the threat of these technologies. And I think it's important to educate, right? So a critical point you just made, understanding where it brings value, actual critical value. And you point out that where we need creativity, it's valuable. Or we don't want creativity, it may not be valuable, which will be our next switch is like, what about healthcare and do we really need creativity? But before we get there, let's understand why generative AI is creative and this idea of hallucination. And then is this a feature or is it a bug, right? Because it's actually probably both depending on what you're using, it's context. So when it comes to generative AI and with hallucinations, what creates that? Peter, do you want to take a crack at it or should I give it back to Prashant? I got the Prashant one for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, again, uh, I think it's the nature of the beast. What are these large language models? They are letter, word, and phrase prediction algorithms, right? So I went to the bank. Let's take that same example. I went to the bank to do what? To either withdraw money or to go fishing, right? And so essentially what these models do is they're doing next word prediction. Now, to Ben's point very quickly, I would argue that the very nature of prediction, whether it's large language models or prediction in time series or whatever it is, one thing to keep in mind is by definition, predictions are not certainty which means that almost all predictions are wrong, except the one. The second thing, even though all predictions might be wrong, some are useful. So I think that's the conversation we should be having. The question is not, do these hallucinate? Yes, they do hallucinate. Part of it is a bug, but I would argue that part of it is a feature. It's a feature because of the nature of things. Unlike humans, this doesn't come in a way where concepts are created, ground truths are established, and words and sentences are put together. It's in reverse. It's words and sentences that are being put together based on prediction and statistics to create sense at the end of it. Two things over here. These foundation models, which are trained on the good and the bad of internet data, will be as good or bad as the data they are used to train on. So if you want these models to make more sense, you want them to be safer, 
You want them to be fairer, more explainable. You got to govern the creation of these models on private data sets, number one. We'll come and back to that. Hold on a sec. Let's stick to why. Let me explain the way I understand it. You tell me if I'm wrong, Prashant, okay? Basically, when you set up your model, you tell it with a literally, it's a percentage function of how much it wants to get to go crazy. So, you know what? If I want you to give me a sentence where the next word is 100%, most likely to be accurate, I give you very little creative abilities. But if I want you to just come up with something wild and maybe something, I'd use a weird word that doesn't often come together, I'm going to let you do, and literally to not put into the system, a 10% go crazy value, right? So you can actually dial in the go crazy piece of it so that it becomes more or less creative. And depending on what you're doing, the creativity part of it gives you a better poem or gives you a cooler looking image. And if you want to dial it down, you're going to get a pretty dull poem, but it'll be pretty much exactly what you're expecting. So beautiful metaphor, if I may just complete that, I would say that there's two parts, three parts to it. One is pre-training, as we touched upon briefly. The second is the context of usage and letting people interact with the system. So that the system learns what is hallucination and what is not hallucination in that context of usage. And the third part is to basically also put together things like fine-tuning in place. So you can control the model behavior of data. You can control the model behavior of fine-tuning. And you can control the model behavior by feedback and usage scenarios. I have some analogies that might be helpful. You know, this is coming from a guy who self-taught. So these are things I think about. Foundational models, tons of foundational models exist, right? These large language models, the, the popular ones are just one example for language. People have probably heard of things like ResNet. So for computer vision, people reuse ResNet for all sorts of applications, right? Reading x-ray. That's not what it was designed for initially. The other analogy that can be really helpful is thinking about it in terms of optical media. So a lens of eyeglasses, the development of the lens and what can we do with a lens? Well, I put them into my eyeglasses or I didn't, but someone figured out how to do that. And I can see we can use them for a microscope. We could use them for a telescope. Now, the problem is your inputs could be flawed. The light that is going into the lens can have flaws in it, perturbations that then create an output that is wrong or not useful or lacks context. The lens itself can have flaws in it as well. So if I remember correctly, Hubble had some sort of problem with its lens when it was initially launched up into space. Problems with the lens, same thing, perturbations and errors that are not useful. And so that's kind of what we're talking about is how can we plug into these representations of knowledge? In this case, a large language model. How do we interface with it so that we get the output that we want? I don't know if that's at all helpful. And then correct me if I misspoke in any way. At the risk of making it even simpler, I should step back and say, look, you can make this idea and analogy that, you know, as investors, we're like, look, LLM is going to go to commoditization. Everybody's going to have their own versions. And I, I feel like, look, you're training these models. It's like, it's like a child. Everybody wants to have a kid now. So while well, kids already exist, they already have a certain level of knowledge and education. But hey, wouldn't it be fun to have my own kid? And would it be fun for me to teach him exactly how I want it and make sure that the content that child is ingesting is actually curated to the likings of the things I want him to know in this world. And so in many ways, right, I think as humans, we have had these benefits of 
evolution. And we're trying to throw 1.7 trillion parameters at these models so that they can quickly absorb what it took us so many years to evolve into this knowledge representation and contextualization engine and perception engines. And so look, we're far away from being as efficient as a human brain when it comes to computation. We're spending so much money and energy on just trying to do these approximations, you know, different conversation. I'm sure we'll talk on that a little bit, but I think this is a little bit where things are going. And so why do you have Mosaic being acquired for 1.4 billion when they don't have that much revenue yet is because it's the right time, it's the right place, it's what the market will want. And they benefit from everybody wanting to try to build their own LLMs. But I think it goes after this lack of hallucination that is required in a corporate world and not just corporate world. We've built a society, hopefully on the idea of truth and the idea of right and wrong. And that may vary through times and societies. Oh, it's who's right, right. who's <laughs> wrong, right? And it's whose truth. But let's go one step back. So I think we kind of skated over something that's very important, Ben, that you just totally focused on, which is the idea of people wanting to build their own child, which I thought was a wonderful analogy, that is trained on their data, on their value systems, on their information sets, on this so that they can provide back the information that you want. This is the idea of the proprietary large language model, which is what we're saying with LLM, your proprietary personalized chat GPT. Now, from what I've understood so far, the reason you want that to happen is that once you've done the generalized training, not the GPT, generalized training on a large data set, you then want to say, okay, I've taught you this language. I've taught you how to understand this language. Now I want you to apply that understanding to this data set. So when I ask you a question, you don't give me some random answer for some remote corner of the web. I want you to look only in my bucket of data and bring back this information, which actually is a very useful thing to do. Frankly, I would want that. Prashant's going to help me do that with a specific data set I'm curious of, of testing. So what we're talking about is these privatized LLMs is, and actually that's what H2O.ai does as well, is this idea that, okay, now we've got this young, thoughtful child that I've sort of brought up. I've trained it on a gazillion parameters. And now I want you to tell me, young, thoughtful child, what something from this information data set. And that is where we're moving, like you said, Ben, and you're seeing all these companies create these standardized models. Okay, did I get that right? Yeah, I think so. The only thing I would add is if you have an option, I'd also take the Ben Levy fine tuner and put it on top of these. Because that analogy he used there about the child and everybody wanting, no chat GPT could have come up with that analogy. It also goes back to, again, context, creativity. The things that these models are good at and the things they are not good at. Right? Okay, let's talk about that. Let's say right there. What are they good at? Ben, what have you been funding? <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's a good way to structure it, right? I, I, I'm glad you asked. And look, so these large language models are not new and NLP was kind of the precursor of that. And I think, you know, we invested seven plus years ago in the person that was behind the foundational technology for Alexa. His first company was acquired by Amazon that became the core engine for Alexa. He basically went on and, and launched his next business called Prion. And that company from the very beginning, in his own words, where, look, I want to build an Alexa for the enterprise, um, but one that's actually useful. And very early on, he's starting to really think about what it would take in an enterprise context to have permissioning and rights. You know, if you are the CFO, you may have access to certain sets of data, but if you are not the CFO, you may not have been able to ask a question that would return the same answers to different person with different rights access. And then he says about, do we want an accurate answer, right? I think that idea of this AI that knows it all, or at least can assist people 
is by providing accurate answer and that the same person as asking the same question or actually different person asking the same question will get ideally the same answer, assuming they have the same level of right and access in the organization. And so that company, Prion, which we've been the first investor into, is now scaling. And I think it's doing what a lot of people think those models are doing, but are not. I mean, this company and this technology is being used in government agencies. And that's because they would not touch anything that hallucinates. I mean, you know, if you, again, as I say, if you're writing an email for a prospect that's going to be vetted by a human eventually, that's great. But if you're talking about how you're servicing a nuclear plant, I would stay far, far away from any sort of answers that would not be the accurate answers. And then you need to be verifying it and getting access to the source information where that information came from. So auditability, transparency, all these things are extremely important in those contexts. And frankly, there are not many things out there that do that thing. And that's why we're pretty excited about this, but it's far and few in between. So no hallucination in nuclear power plants, but if you're sending an email for a job description, you may want to look creative. So a little hallucination to get. Healthcare is not tolerance of too much hallucinating or creativity outside very specific contexts or research where it's well-managed. So to just to bring us back now to the healthcare piece, Prashant, you're in charge of the healthcare arm for H2.AI. Peter, you're doing research using large language. Well, you're not doing large language models, but data and AI. And Ben, you actually, your company does have an, a healthcare focus as one of your focuses for bootstraps, bootstrap labs. So let's talk a little bit about where we're seeing generative AI being applied in healthcare. And we're going to get into these personalized LLMs, Palm, some of the other models have been trained specifically on healthcare data. Let's go there. Peter, you nodded. So let's talk a little bit about models, LLM models that are trained on healthcare data, which should minimize hallucinations and also train the model to really understand context better. Because you already defined the context for that word, colon, in an LLM that's being trained in healthcare, it's not going to come up as a grammatical point of view, right? So yeah, I have to admit, I've not played much with those models. And so I don't have a good gut sense. I mean, my initial response is I'm pretty worried about the application of large language models in healthcare. I don't mean to sound like a Debbie Downer, but the road to an actual product that is something that we can truly hang our hat on, I think is so nettlesome, but there is such need. So no creation. The burden that we deal with as doctors with no creation is tremendous. It is still the bane of my existence after having devoted a couple of years of my life to trying to crack that with a company. And I still have to say it is such a huge thorn. There is obvious potential applications of large language models for assisting with no creation. I think the human definitely does have to be in the loop long into the foreseeable future, but I would be very interested to hear what Prashant has to say. I do think generative AI has some other rules, but I'll pause on that outside of large language models. I would agree with that. I would say generative AI from a larger context where large language models is, I would argue that if you look outside of medical images, text data is to the final frontier for most enterprises, right? So given that, I think large language models will continue to be in vogue, right? A picture is worth a thousand words, but not always. So I think that's one thing. The second thing is in terms of applications. Oh my God, it's El Dorado for me right now, compared to eight months ago. Eight months ago, everybody was either super excited or super nervous. People were super excited that this is going to solve everything. It's going to improve patient care. Angels are going to be singing. Uh, no, not really. 
our people were extremely nervous that everybody is going to be replaced, physicians, nurses. The only people we couldn't replace were patients with generative AI. Short of that, we were able to replace everybody else. I think where we are today is kind of a happy medium. I am seeing a lot of use cases in operational and administrative use cases, particularly where there's still efficiency and productivity place to be made, where you don't have to worry about a hallucination destroying a physician's or a clinician's reputation or a patient's experience. So I would say that until some of these things fall in place, that's where I had a great sticks. The other thing where I'm doing some work personally with Stanford and Pfizer and others is looking at how we can create more empowered patient education programs, which are curated knowledge based on private models, fine tuning and feedback. So I think these are places, right, where there's a ton of information where you want to structure it, construct it and make it usable. Or you want administrative and operational simplification and productivity. Those are Two huge areas. Clinical use cases, I am seeing a few, to be honest. But at the same time, the bar on bringing clinical use cases with generative AI into a production thing, I would wait for more safety, alignment, interpretability, and explainability to be brought to the Right. Ben, you had to say something? Yeah. A couple of points. I think as a venture capitalist, early on, we're like, okay, where are we going to see creation of value using AI type technologies before even Gen.I showed up? And obviously the imaging, the perceptions, right? People have been going there. And if you think about the science, very often for history, I think we have created breakthrough innovation, sometimes by serendipity, sometimes by accident, by combining things that we didn't think of combining. And so in the exploratory, in creative sense of the world, AI may help us, right? I think if you go back to the analogy of AlphaGo and I look at this competition and yes, the human lost, but guess what? The AI showed the human a new way to play this game that we've been playing for so many years and made him more creative and allowed him to actually win one of the rounds because of that. And so humans can make us better, can challenge us and can help us maybe a bit maybe more creative in ways that we may not dare because of the way we were raised of being scared of failing. And so there's interesting elements in that that could be useful. I look at healthcare as a business and we're like, look, we have a triage problem. You talk about nurses, Stefano, I know it's, a, it's a something dear to you, to your heart because we're not replacing people, we're augmenting people. We may shift the needs of the labor and the skills required of people. But I love this analogy to say, look, We've spent the last hundred years training humans to be machines, and we can talk about why, but AI may free us and allow us to be more humans because we're going to let some of these grunt, repeatedly boring tasks being taken care of by machines, and then we can focus our time on what we're much better at. But that's also a societal challenge and conversation. Love that. Love that. Because I think we're limiting. When people talk about generative AI, the thinking poetry, the thinking random pictures, what it allows us to do is to take this chat interface and query a data set, which means that so much of healthcare is not diagnostics and therapeutics. So much of healthcare is keeping the machine going. It's logistics, it's supply chain, it's understanding a cost. It's a business. You're running a business, it's, right? It's a business. And if you can tie all your data sets in and ask yourself, just go into a bug and say, are we running out of saline? And it knows. Oh, and by the way, how much saline do we go through a weekend? Do we do more of it on Monday without having to build a chart and hire a whole bunch of AI people who actually do statistical analysis to figure it out? That stuff is accessible conceptually. And I've seen it actually play out already. It's like, there are things we can do with AI that is not some of the sexy diagnostic stuff, which will I free mean, us up. You know, 
I want read, to know, yeah. read my note yeah. and code it for me. I mean, Peter was working on that. It's not so simple, but it's getting simpler. Yeah, I would underline that, especially for folks out in the audience looking for where they can apply it. I mean, in operations where it's not provider or not necessarily, but definitely not patient facing or clearly provider facing where embarrassing answers can be both a embarrassing and a major safety concern. But for organizations who are starting to apply this again, operationally within the organization, that's a place to get one's feet wet and where these mistakes, people can reason them out and manage the glitches and errors that develop. You don't want to be in a context where it's a do or die, right? It's not you're playing with the life of a patient and type of decisions. This is not where you start. So you start in control environment, you start in laboratory environments. And when we look at our investment thesis, you know, that we formed already years ago, we made three investments, right? We made one investment around mental health and wellness. And the interesting aspect is not because we wanted everybody to have access to a chatbot. This actually could be potentially criminal if you ask me to use this sort of large language models for these sort of purposes. But it's actually the other way around. How do we maintain humans at the highest quality possible by using an AI to assist them to remind them constantly how to engage, how to approach and how to talk to someone? That was very interesting to us how we elevate the human and increase the quality and consistency over time in that scale. Then we look at the triage stop challenge. There for a second. Which... So what you mean is an AI in the background that's listening to the tone of voice and alerting the physician, for example, hey, this person is really getting anxious. Maybe you should tone it down, right? That's the kind of thing you're talking about? That could be a dimension, but more even consistently around the type of question to ask, open asking an open-ended question versus a closed-ended questions. So it's listening to you and saying, by the way, the scientific way is looking what you're typing could be text-based, right? It doesn't have to be verbal. But again, using the metal proven science to deliver care and maintain the consistency of that when it's delivered by human, because we know we're all fallible, we all get tired, we all have a bad day. And so how do we maintain consistency at scale, right? Is an interesting way to support humans because machines are not getting tired. They're not getting emotional unless we make them to. <laughs> and then there's this triage I was talking about. We use these sensors and endpoints on patients re- being at home and say, how do we help the care professionals spend time with the right patient at the right time? Help them focus on seeing the right patient at the right time, not scheduling you because, oh, it's been two weeks. You're fine, doing great. All your vitals tells me you're fine. I should see this other person that's about to relapse. But you don't know that unless you have access to real life data. And so how can AI can help you triage these things and prioritize the right patients or give you notice that somebody might be at risk. And the, right? and so that, but that's not Gen AI. That's not Gen AI, it's just to be clear. But where Gen AI comes in, and just the thing you said at the very beginning, Ben, was like we went from narrow to generalized. And yeah, we could five, seven years ago, write a specific line of code to tell you exactly three things, the blood pressure, the heart rate, and the temperature of a patient and track those three things and give you a feedback loop. We could do that. But if all of a sudden you had to add something else to it, you couldn't. It was super hard. You had to rewrite the whole piece of code. Now with a journalized AI, you can just toss that into the question and throw in another variable. So long as it's in the data set, you can bring it in, making it far, far more elastic. I'm just uh, one thing I would say, Stefan. Go ahead, for sure. I'd probably right. say that the world is not going to be narrow AI and generalized AI. That's not going to be that. Definitely not. The reality I'm seeing is it's going to be generalized. Let's talk about generalized AI just for a minute, right? Not generalized technology. Gen AI, generalized models. The structure and some. Oh, wait, that's not the same as generative AI. Generalized AI is a whole different Generalized models, generative AI, right? What I mean is even these generalized models, these GPT models today, the structure and semantics, the generalization works pretty well. 
Where it doesn't work well is the sense. So I would actually posit that we would need more narrow models downstream or upstream. So the universe of the usage of these models is going to be large language models, small language models, a garden of models with different flowers blooming. And it's up to us to figure out what the bouquet needs to be. It can be all roses or it can be roses and daffodils. It's the multi-agent world. This is actually where a lot of the innovations is taking place right now. It's like you create narrower agents talking to one another and figuring things out that together, stitch together, start to represent knowledge in a way that's very interesting. I mean, I've seen firsthand a virtual worker being created in front of my eyes in a matter of minutes. You have an AI talking to another AI, learning from the other one. It's kind of scary. It's kind of exciting. I you tell just, you, well, you, just wait, you, just, you just knocked it up a notch in our conversation to agents, <laughs> which is a whole new thing. It's the latest and the greatest. And maybe we'll come back to that in a minute. But let's stick to applications of AI in healthcare and where we're seeing it. We've talked about large language models being able to help us with transcription, with coding, making sense. I've seen that as a company with recently that takes a physician's note to their patient and translates it into English so they understand what it is that they're talking about. So simplifying complex data into normal language. Where else are we seeing it applied? What have you invested in, Ben? Three companies in healthcare you've invested in with generative AI. So the answer is actually at this point, I would say none. Oh. Um, we have deployed capital in any healthcare company using Gen AI specifically. And again, it needs to be a large enough use case. You know, venture capital is this very narrow lens of the world where you're looking for this company that's going to be a winner-take-all type situations, creating long-term value and sustainable, defensible value as well. And frankly, I think the, the we're asking ourselves these very questions. Aren't these companies that are coming up with a slight advantage because they're executing fast, because they have a set of data that others don't have right this second, and coming up with some value creation use cases are going to have a sustainable advantage long-term, or frankly, it's going to be going down to zero pretty fast. And then it becomes just an execution play, which is not a bad thing either. Often the difference between success and failures is obviously the team and the execution, not so much the opportunity, but there's not that many opportunities out there just yet. And when you go into certain very narrow use cases, right? So either. we're looking... Okay. Fine, but we're got not it. Yet. You're not there yet. <laughs> Prashant, you run the whole healthcare division for H2AI. Where are you seeing... Um, yes, so I'm just, uh, I'll probably name drop some customers here because we are doing work with them and H2O is an open source AI ML company with a large open source stack in the Gen AI thing. So some of these stories will be public pretty soon. I large health system, 20 hospital IDN in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey area, working very closely with their leadership, chief digital officer, chief data and analytics officer, CFO and CEO. What problem are they trying to solve? Uh, multiple problems. The one is actually a challenge with PDFs, bringing together for their academic medical centers referral PDFs in order to drive quicker time to appointment for the patient. Again, operational use case. In this case, taking a look at various referral PDFs coming in very similar, Stefano, to what we did with UCSF last year. And then we are also seeing a contracts use case with another healthcare organization that is looking at supply chain contracts and payer contracts in order to be able to find out insights among those PDF contracts, primarily. And uh, again, some financial implications over there. Third use case we are working on is with a pharma company on rare diseases, where we are kind of creating these rare disease small language models or generative AI models that 
focuses, again, rare disease by its very nature has a paucity of data. So how do we take advantage of these to bring certain things together? Can't talk too much in public about that. But those are three efforts that have gone ongoing right now. Using some of H2O's tool stack, we are also being able to do some pretty amazing stuff such as shared things on a technical side. For example, run our LLMs on database schemas and come up with very convincing narrative. Or we, you can literally draw a picture of a screen that you want or a series of screens, take a photo with your smartphone, send it to me. And by the time I'm done with this sentence, I'll have the results and a fully functioning UX back to you. Right mm-hmm. in about 30 seconds. So we are already seeing efficiencies, not just on the operational side and the business side, but internally also we are seeing a tremendous amount of use of these models in the technical space. Peter. Yeah, it is so early. It is so difficult to speak with any degree of certainty. I think with respect to generative, I'm using it in very limited capacity to simply try to understand what's possible. I think within the research setting, I see it as a potential frame shift in how you might approach research, though. And it may not just be with large language models. Right now, the scientific method basically says, hey, you scientists, come up with a hypothesis and then, you know, let's test it. Okay, pretty good. And that worked pretty well when you had small data sets. And because you didn't want to be, had your mind contaminated by the information within that data set. But the thing is, as humans, we come in with our own bias. So now, though, when we have these large models that pull together all this data, you're essentially looking at much larger populations. For hypothesis generation, generative AI could be potentially very useful. Before we came up, again, the scientists, you know, I'm going to decide to look under this rock. Well, that's fairly limited. What if we could say, oh, out of this cluster of rocks, these 10 rocks are probably the ones to maybe look under. Again, very early, I can't give you specific examples, but in terms of what generative AI does, I can't help but think that that might be something that's possible. So I'll tell you where I'm going with this stuff. I've already mentioned translation of medical text for non-medical people, so I understand what we're talking about. How often do people leave the office and have no idea what I said? As clean as I need to be, I just don't even know what I'm not saying, what people don't understand. I'm looking at the ability of virtual of AI to regenerate virtual worlds for VR, making it much, much cheaper. Because right now, a VR experience on also VR, for example, is 100 grand over. And if you need to change something, you need to change it, but it requires people going in and recreating those models and it's super expensive and that's gonna go away and make it much more accessible. I'm super excited about what's happening at Google right now with things like R2T, RT2, with Google's new robotics. Super cool stuff because we're in the robot space, Peter, and everybody's giving us these robots as 1980s technology. What about a robot that can visually look at the space and follow a command and it goes through web to learn what that command should look like, understands it, brings it back, puts it in contact with the data that's coming from the robot itself, from its sensors, and can write its own code to execute that request. Now, I would love to have that robot in the OR to help assist with holding a hook or holding a thing or helping assist, watching what I'm doing and saying, by the way, two millimeters past that is an artery. That's all in the generative AI space. That's super exciting. And then there's also some other models that I think could really help us with just a basic everyday, like you said, it's like, do I really need to be coding everything? But why, as opposed to the coding part, tell me that I wrote three things and I forgot to code for it and I've done all the work for it. Why don't I just get paid for it? It's like, those are things that are relevant. 
On the patient side, their ability to interface with an avatar of me that speaks to me, talks to me, knows what I know, knows what I wanted to know, and is able to answer questions that I'm not available. And I think, Ben, you pointed this out earlier, this whole idea of people losing their jobs. We have the hardest time hiring people. In Europe, I thought this was inaccurate, but last week I heard that in Italy, my home country, there's short like 50,000 physicians, which I thought was crazy. In the States, we're about the same. We're at 500,000 nurses short. If you don't live in a major city, getting access to care is starting to be complicated and using these generative models to provide basic constrained support, even if it just means figuring out who you should see, is going to be better than no support at all. And I believe that at some level, these technologies are going to be the way we will solve the aging population issue, where there's support for loneliness or support for clinical care, perioperative care models. It's very, very potentially interesting. Now, is it there yet today? Ben will tell me, no, <laughs> it's not there yet, but the potential is wow. there and that excites me. Ben. It's part of this digitization and representation of knowledge. I think as societies, we've gone to write things down so they wouldn't be forgotten. And then now we have an opportunity to really at a mass scale, absorb knowledge and analyze knowledge, do pattern recognitions and have a conversation with the document. I mean, how cool is that? You know, but the truth is we're still the one asking the questions. I always say, look, answer to the question is knowledge. Intelligence is knowing what question to ask. I think I AI is still far from being able to asking the right question, but it's coming. And as they ask questions, they can ask and gather knowledge that is contextualized, right? And I think that's the sort of thing that I like to think that you can find an equation, mathematical equation for curiosity. It's been done and you can start coding a lot of things, but we're trying to teach our children critical thinking. Can we impart an AI with critical thinking? Because I think that is going to help them go a lot further and blow our minds. Okay, last word and we're closing it. By the way, I did not realize we had three philosophers online today. Outstanding work, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Do you have a last word you want to share with our audience about the promise of generative AI? We'll leave it on a positive note. So, I'm Peter, you start. Off, uh, oh, no, we're starting to start. space. Stefano, I, Doc, SF, H2AI are working on some cool stuff. And we would love to essentially, I think that we are just getting started here. Notwithstanding all of the things that we discussed over here, we're just getting started and it's an exciting future ahead. We'd love to continue this conversation. Thank you to Doc SF again for bringing this excellent panel together. Ben. Yeah, I think I just left my best word out there. So I'm just going to thank you for this opportunity and I look forward to engaging with the people that are listening and do follow ups there. So thank you again. Peter, your last word then. Yeah, I think it's just so early. It depends on the day. My cycles about what I think about this go like this. So if that's the way you feel, I think that's probably normal at this point and just keep on thinking about it. Thank you so much for having us, Steph. We're always, always a pleasure. Awesome. Well, I would encourage everybody to think about putting on your calendar for October 10, 11, 2024 will be the next Doc SF in person. We'll focus entirely on the application of generative AI tools in the musculoskeletal space. By then, we'll have a few more examples to go with. And if not, we'll find ones in nearby areas to learn from. It's very, very exciting space. It's growing quickly. We'll be back in about a month getting more into different kinds of models and also getting more into some of the potential applications and combinations of applications, multimodal AI and that kind of thing. So with that, I want to thank everybody. I want to be cognizant of everybody's time. Thank you very much for joining us. Ben, Peter, and Prashant, you guys were outstanding panelists. Thank you so much. 
Thank, Thank you. you. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. If you find the talks as incredibly informative and topical as we did, please do share this podcast with your friends and leave us a nice review on your podcast player of choice. It would mean a lot if you did.